is submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 9234, Music, Peeler and Garrett versus Employers Insurance of Wausau. Mr. Bird, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case concerns the implication of a cause of action for contribution in a federal statute. The statute in question is Section 10B of the 1934 Securities Exchange Act. It is a statute in which courts have previously implied a cause of action for people who suffer losses as a result of purchases or sales of securities or the, uh, as a result of damage, or pardon me, as a result of violations of Section 10B. My theme today is simple. The court should apply its intent-based jurisprudence of implied rights, a standard which respondents concede they cannot meet when asked to apply a cause of action for contribution in a statute in which a victim's civil claim has previously been implied. Respondents and their amici assert that the court should apply a different line of cases. That is the line of cases involving fleshing out the victim's remedy itself. My burden today is to show that a contribution claim is a separate claim and it should be treated as any other potential implied right of action in this court's jurisprudence. Implied contribution is to be treated like any other request for an implied action, first because this court has said so. In the Northwest Airlines and Texas Industries cases, the unsuccessful petitioners made arguments which are indistinguishable from the arguments made by the respondents in this case. The court treated contribution there as an implied claim over those arguments. In Texas Industries, the petitioner asserted that contribution was not at all a new cause of action, but only a supplement to the victim's express remedy in that statute for damages that's uh, under Section 4 of the Clayton Act. The, the petitioner in that case also argued that contribution was a necessary corollary to judicial creation under the antitrust laws of joint and several liability among violators of that law. And Amiki in that case actually argued that contribution was somehow within the penumbra of the statute itself. The court in that case said that in almost any statutory scheme, courts may have to interpret ambiguous or incomplete provisions. But the authority to construe a statute differs fundamentally from the authority to fashion new remedies. The court also said that the judicial determination that defendants shall be jointly and severally liable does not suggest that courts have the power to order contribution among the defendants. For joint and several liability only assures that the victims whom Congress intended to protect shall have full recovery from some, if not all, of the perpetrators. Were there any lingering doubt that somehow Texas Industries and Northwest Airlines differed from this court's general jurisprudence of implied rights of action, I would suggest that was put to rest last year in footnote six of Franklin versus Gwinnett County Public Schools, where the court cited all of those cases as a single line and said that its intent-based jurisprudence shall apply to all such cases. Implied contribution is to be treated like any other request for an implied claim. Second, because contribution is a distinct action 
And if I suppose that footnote sort of grandfathered the implied uh, uh, cause of action under 10b. That footnote did not discuss the implied contribution under Section 10b. No, not contribution, just the cause of action. The implied cause of action under 10b itself was grandfathered as far back as banker's life. I think the court has uh, accepted the fact that lower courts have uh, have adopted that implied cause of action for victims, uh, and repeatedly in, in a number of cases the court has fleshed out that victim's remedy, but has, the court has, has never addressed the issue whether there shall be implied contribution. Contribution is a separate action because it always involves a different plaintiff, and that different plaintiff is someone whose claim has not been recognized that different plaintiff is someone who is always a perpetrator of a violation of the statute, always a member of the class that Congress intended to regulate, never a member of the class that Congress intended to protect. Second contribution very often involves a different defendant. Even if contribution is sought in the same action where the victims seek their their uh, compensation. Third-party practice permits other parties, other defendants, to be brought in by contribution actions. And often, as is the case here, contribution brings to federal court a new suit. Implying contribution truly extends federal jurisprudence to embrace a dispute which Congress has not assigned the federal courts to resolve. And that is a dispute for adjustment of damages among defendants as opposed to a suit for compensation by a victim. Unless Congress tells the federal courts that it wants them to embrace that dispute, to reach out. Did, did we ever pretend when we created the, uh, the 10B cause of action that Congress intended that cause of action to exist? No, Justice Scalia, you acquiesced in the lower court's development of the 10b-5 cause of action under standards which differ profoundly from the standards that this court now uses to determine whether there shall be implied rights of any kind. Under a lamp kind of analysis, uh, having created uh, uh, 10b-5 actions, uh, um, what you might say, uh, without any explicit uh, indication of congressional intent, uh, why shouldn't we continue to round out the scheme without any without any uh, indication of congressional intent? Contribution is not rounding out. There is the, the rounding out cases of which LAMF is one. Start from the uh, start with the assumption that the court must reach an answer. Uh, to illustrate an example even simpler than, than LAMF, the court cannot walk away from the question whether the standard for liability under Section 10B shall be negligence, shall be scienter. The court cannot say, well, Congress didn't instruct us on this, so we we simply won't answer the question. There is absolutely no need in rounding out the victim's cause of action to develop an entirely new jurisprudence of the rights of perpetrators. You think we're just... uh we, we think we'd just be off base if we tried to divine what Congress's intention might be if it thought about it? I do, Your Honor, very much so. I believe the kind of analysis which exists in the respondent's brief in this case is a kind of analysis in which this Court should never indulge in the process of deciding whether to create a cause of action. The question is an attempt. I, your Honor put it very succinctly. What would Congress have done if it had known? That is not an effort to determine legislative intent. It is an effort to impute intent to a mind which had none whatsoever. Well, Congress, don't you think Congress has uh, uh, the, uh, em- embraced the n- notion of a cause of action under 10b? I believe Congress has, em- ha- beyond any question, has embraced the notion that victims of violations of Section 10B. So your answer shall is have, yes. Yes. Just plain yes. Yes. Congress has, has said that victims shall have a cause of action against perpetrators. It, it has seen and approved of this Court's jurisprudence. It has not said in any way whatsoever 
that perpetrators shall have remedies against each other uh, to adjust what they pay to But it has said that in comparable sections, uh, maybe you don't think they're comparable, that there should be contribution. I do not believe they are comparable, though I would well, What start- if they were? What if 9 and 18, you could say, are sort of fellow travelers with uh, 10B uh, uh, and and the Congress has expressly provided for contribution. I would still argue that the court should not engage in that kind of reasoning by analogy that says, well, Congress did it here and Congress did it there, so Congress would have done it if it had only known. Well, we did it for statute of limitation. But that was an entirely different situation, Your Honor, where you were in. Well, it always is. (laughs) Right. No, but why? You, you, you say that we had no choice, that we had to come up with some. We didn't, have to, we didn't have to pick a statute of limitations. We could have said there are no statute of limitations. There, there, there are such things. Uh, the, just, just, just the law of latches uh, governs and nothing else. Why couldn't we have said that? The analysis in uh, – you could have, but you did not. The court right. did not do that, Your Honor. The analysis in LAMP commences with a phrase which says – accepting that some limitation must apply. And by saying that, this court squarely placed the analysis of LAMF within the same line of cases that says we will determine what is the standard of liability, that says we will determine whether purchasers or sellers or perhaps someone else shall have a cause of action. That was not the creation of a cause of action. It is not a form of reasoning which should be applied in a case like this. Well, why doesn't I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. No. Why, why doesn't this form of reasoning apply? Um, one of our sort of rounding out theories is that if there is in fact a, a class of, uh, of plaintiffs who are, are given a, a, an implied cause of action, and there are other potential plaintiffs who uh, are in essentially the same equitable kind of position that we ought to round out and, and extend to that second group of plaintiffs. Why don't we have sort of the converse situation here, uh, that if in fact there is a group of defendants uh, who are in some comparable position and have a right of contribution, uh, then we ought to round out our cause of action to do the same thing uh, for defendants under 10b, as Justice White uh, referred a moment ago to the, to the section, what is it, the section 9 and section 18 uh, causes of action, there, there is contribution. Why isn't the same equitable argument for the sake of defendants um, uh, an appropriate argument to make here as the equitable argument in, in the case of plaintiffs that we recognized in, in Virginia bank shares? Because initially, Your Honor, you do not approach these people as defendants. You approach these people as plaintiffs. They have brought to court, and this case is a classic illustration, they have brought to court a lawsuit separate from the victim's lawsuit in which they assert an entirely new cause of action against new defendants. That is an extension well, of federal... If, may I just interrupt you and ask this? If we get over the question of whether to call them plaintiffs or whether to call them defendants, do they not have essentially the same equitable argument to make? Uh, we are in a worse position uh, than those who have been subjected to express causes of action uh, where, where express uh, rights of contribution apply. Uh, and therefore, we ought, as a matter of equity, to be accorded the, the same right, whether you call us a plaintiff or whether you call us a defendant. Justice Souter, that is an issue of pure policy. They can make that argument. The fundamental question is whether the whether federal courts should entertain an argument of pure policy when what is before them is the question whether Congress authorized a, the courts to create a cause of action. May I? Uh, first of all, you don't really draw a distinction between whether the contribution claims asserted after judgment or after settlement or before, do you? I do not, no. Justice Stevens. I just wanted to be sure, because then it wouldn't matter whether you call them plaintiff or defendant in that context. But what about the um, uh, reasoning in the uh, blue chip case where we talked about the acorn growing into a judicial oak uh, and that, therefore, it's too late to chop the oak down, in effect? Don't we, in a, to a certain extent, have a judicial oak here in that uh, courts of appeals have rather consistently found a, a right of contribution over the years, and that's sort of what the law, with one exception, uh, is today? Your Honor, you do not. Um, Contribution in 
federal security in 10b-5 cases at this point is not a judicial oak. What the court is being asked to do here is to plant certainly a new more acorn. Than an, it's certainly more than an acorn. <laughs> and there are a lot of cases out there, and there have been for a good many years. It's a hard nut to crack, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps it's a little sapling, but it certainly does not have the dignity that the 10b-5 cause of action had when it reached this court in Banker's life, uh, nor does it have even the theoretical underpinnings of that. Uh, in uh, When this court first met the implied cause of action under Section 10b, it had been recognized by far more courts, including courts of appeal, and it also had an underpinning that that cause of action was implied under whatever theory of jurisdiction for the very people, investors, who were the people to be protected when Congress enacted Section 10b. This is not a class of people who were to be protected when Congress enacted Section 10b. Congress enacted Section 10b as an extremely broad regulatory statute, not simply the disclosure statute, which the court sees most often. There is no reason to suggest that in attempting to regulate disclosures, markets, and anything else the Securities and Exchange Commission thought was necessary to protect the public and investors, Congress intended to do anything to adjust the rights and liabilities of perpetrators of violations of the section. Implied contribution also is to be treated like any other implied action because abandoning the intent-based jurisprudence in this case is bad judicial policy. The real in, if the real intent-based standard is abandoned, Federal courts will face countless arguments, like the colloquy we have just had here, suggesting that through some reasoning by analogy or some principle of equity, some party is entitled to assert a cause of action because some other party is entitled to do so. This reasoning by analogy is like looking at legislative history through dark glasses. Two things are true of it. <laughs> or at all. But in this case, certainly, first, it's obscure, and second, what one sees depends on the color of the glasses. Because whenever the court begins trying to create causes of action by analogy, the question is, what analogy is valid? The validity of an analogy depends on adopting the same premises that Congress adopted when it enacted the statute. And the sort of reasoning which is being urged on this court today is a kind of reasoning which attempts to create intent in congressional minds which, were, which was not there. Were there Second, pendant uh, state law claims in this case? Uh, Justice Kennedy, there were. Now, does state law allow contribution? State law would allow contribution for certain purposes in California, it's called comparative equitable indemnification. The claims alleged in state law in, in this case were dismissed by the district court at the same time that all other claims were dismissed. And there would remain an issue in the district court upon dismissal of the 10b-5 or 10b attempted contribution claim, whether any of the state law claims would be valid. The state law claims obviously are not here before this court. A second critical issue of judicial policy in applying the intent-based standard is that any time the court departs from it, especially with respect to a right of contribution, Mr. What, what, what point in time do you think Congress's intent is relevant? Are you talking about intent-based standard back in 34 or more recently? Because if you go all the way back to 34, the general rule was if they passed a statute, well, they, they expected the judges to figure out the appropriate remedy. So I'm wondering whether you're talking about intent in 34 or intent since we changed the law a few years ago. Well, the court has uniformly applied its 
intent-based jurisprudence looking at the intent when the statute was created. So we're looking at 34. You would be looking at 34, Your Honor, although that's one of the very issues that comes up once one starts to reason by analogy, and that is what Congress does one look at. The secondary jurisprudence in this case already includes what's the effect of partial settlement without guidance of Congress, whether contribution, if allowed, would be pro rata or by relative fault. Some guidance by Congress in Section 11 of the 1933 Act, none anyplace else. In this very case, if one were to look to Sections 9 and 18 and say, well, Congress might have done the same thing, in any case where there's both a Section 10 claim and a 1933 Section 11 claim, it's possible for the Section 10 contribution analysis utterly to overwhelm the plain language of Section 11, which says that those who were intentional wrongdoers shall not have contribution against those whose violation was recklessness or of some lesser character. And I think, Justice Stevens, although in general one would look at 1934, it is certainly valid in this case to say, once one gets into the analysis of contribution, should we look at Section 20A and see if in Section 20A, which Congress passed in 1988, it had learned something about whether contribution was efficacious or not and explicitly declined to adopt it as part of the Insider Trading Act. I think that secondary jurisprudence is one which cautions this Court not to attempt to create causes of action for contribution where they did not exist before. The Court should set a clear and simple principle to apply to requests for implied contribution wherever the Court has previously accepted an implied victim's cause of action. This is not the only case in which a request for implied contribution could come to the Court. It could arrive in the Commodity Exchange Act. It could arise under Title IX. It could arise under the Rehabilitation Act. Perhaps most importantly in terms of volume impact on the federal court, it could arise, it has arisen, it has created a conflict in the circuits under the Civil Rights Act. And I would urge the Court to take the opportunity in this case to write clear, simple, principled, intent-based jurisprudence which will guide the lower federal courts in all of those cases and prevent the necessity for resolving them on a case-by-case basis using the kind of analysis that comes out of hypotheticals. The Court has never fleshed out one implied right with another. This is not the first time to do it. I would urge that the Court in this case ask itself a question. In writing a decision in this case, is this the end or is it a beginning? The entire fleshing out line of cases defines, it often limits, a Section 10b cause of action. Or is this a beginning? Is it the planting of an oak or perhaps the cultivation of what's now only a sapling? Does this case shape an old claim or does it create a new claim? Emphatically, this case creates a new claim which this Court should not recognize. If there are no further questions, Mr. Chief Justice, I would reserve the remainder of my time. Kennedy. Could I ask you if, in developing intent-based jurisprudence, would you say that, just have a real simple rule, Congress either provides a cause of action or you just never imply one? Is that — I suppose that would be your choice. You either imply — Congress either expressly creates it or courts don't imply it, period. That goes beyond the Court's current rule, and I would not urge that the Court has to adopt a position that is that strict. So we're going to be constantly, as we have been for years, trying to divine congressional intent 
from almost any source? What I've urged, uh, Justice White, is that the court's jurisprudence under the Touche-Ross and Transamerica line of cases is a currently successful analysis which, which provides adequate guidance. If the court were to choose to say if it's not in the statute, it's not there, that's certainly a, a, a sustainable uh, basis to decide this case. It's not a necessary basis. Very well, Mr. Bird. Uh, Mr. Olson, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. With the Court's permission, I would like first to place the question presented, in this case in its proper context, and then emphasize four points concerning its resolution. The context is that for 22 years, and over the course of 10 decisions, this Court has been engaged in a continuous process of defining the configurations and contours of of the 10B implied remedy to make it consistent with the regulatory scheme from which it is derived. This case is simply part of that continuum. The Court must decide how 10B defendants will allocate among themselves the damages for which 10B makes each of them liable. The only question is how that issue will be decided, in favor or against contribution among 10B defendants. Well, is this contribution between defendants or contribution from non-party defendants? It's contribution among the persons who would be liable to the plaintiff under Section... So there are people who weren't parties? They are people who may not necessarily have been parties, but people whose liability was established by the conduct that gave rise to the 10B action or in the comparable... Securities Act express remedies, the violation of Section 9, Section 18, Section 11. There are four reasons we submit. Well, that, that's, a, that's a point to be tried, though, isn't it, or, or not? Whether, they're, whether indeed their, their, their conduct um, made them liable for the... Yeah, yes, it would be, but, that, but their liability would be established by the conduct that occurred at the time of the violation of Section 10B. We submit that there are four reasons why this Court's jurisprudence and the choice Congress has already made require a decision in favor of contribution over no contribution. The first relates to the means by which the decision should be made. The second is the outcome that that method ordains. The third responds to petitioner's central argument. And and the fourth concerns the consequences of a decision against contribution. First, the methodology. Petitioners suggest that there's some sort of dichotomy between divining the intent of Congress and filling out the contours of the Section 10B remedy. We submit that the Court has applied a consistent, fundamental jurisprudential principle in defining the 10B remedy. The Court looks to the 73rd Congress, the interrelated 33 Act and 34 Act, to the express statutory remedies that are the analogs of Section 10B, and then decides what Congress would have intended had it considered the issue and what result would conform the 10B implied remedy most faithfully to the statutory regime. This approach we submit has three very strong and powerful virtues. It respects the separation of powers, leaving the policymaking decision to the policymaking branch. It yields consistent results by consulting with the same oracle on each occasion a 10b-5 issue or 10b issue is presented. And it provides a clear and predictable path for lower courts deciding future 10b cases as well as guidance for those who must litigate past inventions. But such a terrific approach, why have we abandoned it? You have not abandoned 10B. Uh, we submit that the court, the court has considered uh, 10B cases over 10, 10, 10B cases over the last 22 years. And for all intents and purposes, that precise methodology visited most re- recently two years ago in LAMP involved that same process, consulting the statutory framework from which 10B arose, the analog most comparable provisions of the section uh, comparable to Section 10B, 
section, in that case, Section 11, Section, and particularly Section 9 and 18 of the 1934 Act, and that is the methodology that the Court applied. The Court applied a similar and uh, virtually identical methodology to the other 10B cases. So the Court, far from abandoning any approach that the Court has applied in 10B cases, we're asking the Court consistently to do what it has done over and over again and what it did most recently in Lamp. Mr. Olson, though, don't Texas Industries and Northwest Airlines indicate that a contribution action is separate? It's, it's separate from the underlying cause of action, well, we have, which might move it beyond LAMP. I have several, several responses to that. That is the central and exclusive core to the petitioner's argument in this case. In the first place, the, the reference in those two cases to the phrase cause of action was not necessary to this decisions in either of those two cases. What the court was doing in those two cases, we respectfully submit, and the Court did unanimously, was look to the intention of Congress. In each of those cases, Congress had created an explicit statutory remedy. And in each of those cases, Congress had not included a cause of action or a claim or a remedy for contribution as a part of the explicit cause of action. As a result, the Court determined Congress created this cause of action explicitly, did not want contribution as a part of it, and we will adhere to the judgment of Congress. The phrase cause of action really had very little to do with it. What we submit is what is happening in the Securities Act. And by the way, uh, in the Northwest Airlines case, the Court said specifically, when in, in, in a footnote, the Court specifically said when Congress did want to create a cause of action or a remedy or a right for contribution, it did so. And the court in that footnote pointed explicitly to the securities laws, the, the, the 33 and 34 acts. Those, the, the rule of contribution explicitly provided in the securities acts is very unusual in federal law. There are very few explicit rights to contribution. Thus, Congress knew what it was doing when it included a rights, to con rights to contribution in the securities acts. In fact, in Section 11 and in Section 9 and in Section 18, the reference to contribution is included in the definition of the right or the remedy itself, thus suggesting that Congress felt that contribution was a part of the cause of action or a part of the remedy, and suggesting that Congress felt that that contribution right was an important essential feature of the remedy itself. Thus, we don't, we don't believe that Contribution is a separate cause of action, but even if it were a separate cause of action, the very same methodology would apply. The court would try to determine whether implying the cause of action, if that's what's going to be done, would be most consistent with the statutory framework. We submit that, again, it would be most consistent with the statutory framework. Because every time the, the, when Congress did create a mechanism for security, securities fraud in 1933 and 1934, it repeatedly put contribution as a part of those rights. This Court has determined over and over again that the provisions to which I've referred are most like Section 10B. Section 10B is a part of them. It's a judicial overlay to Section 10B. And the same rules Congress would have wanted to include a right of contribution in a 10B remedy, just as it did it wanted to include a right of contribution with respect to the Sections 11, 9, and 18 remedy. Probably most telling uh, is the consequences of what might occur if the Court were to hold a non-contribution right in this case. Um, because Section 10B is an overlay to these uh, explicit securities provisions, Securities Act provisions, uh, the parade of horribles that the plaintiffs refer to about that, that, that result allegedly from contribution are going to exist anyway. Petitioners' concern about the complexity in settlements and so forth we submit is going to occur anyway because contribution does exist, it will exist, and it will continue to exist in Section 10B-5 cases because Sections 9, 11, and 18 are also going to be involved in those cases. In fact, what would happen 
if this court adopted a no contribution rule in Section 10B cases, it would give the plaintiffs a choice to write out of existence the contribution rights that Congress so explicitly intended. In 10B cases or in securities fraud cases, you'd have a choice of the plaintiff to select contribution or no contribution because Section 10B overrides everything else. If the plaintiffs chose to select 10B, it could write out the provisions of contribution that exist in Sections 9, 11, and 18. Thus, you would involve, as a result of the judicial creation of Section 10B, involve yourself in a judicial implied repeal of the contribution rights that Congress so explicitly intended. Are those actions exclusive? Can't, do, you, do you have to elect between? You don't have to elect, but, but well, why can't you just plead them all and ask for contribution as to the, as to the former, but not as to 10B? You, you, you could do that. A plaintiff could do that, and then you would have what the, the concern that the plaintiff is worried about, that you would have complexity involved in contribution. You're going to have a further complexity of, of the court having to resolve contribution and non-contribution in the same case and try to assign the amount of liability that was a result no, of that, that may be true. My only point was that not, not necessarily a repealer of the contribution, uh, as, as you indicated. Well, but it could be used as, by a plaintiff as a repealer to avoid the contribution. Only if he elects. If he elects. But Congress, when it established a mechanism for enforcement through private remedies of securities fraud, clearly wanted contribution to be a part. Con contribution ensures that the wrongdoers cannot completely escape. Even if the plaintiffs don't select out the wrongdoers, the defendants may select out the wrongdoers. In addition to that, as this Court indicated in Bateman Eichler, there's affirmative value in the enforcement process to allow the wrongdoers to sue one another. Uh, it allows them, the defendants, to bring cases against other potential defendants to bring to the attention of the law enforcement authorities possible violations of the securities laws. That's why the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, has filed a brief and is here today supporting the inclusion of contribution because contribution is such a necessary, as perceived by Congress, inclusion in the Securities Act. If you give plaintiffs an opportunity to repeal contribution, and plaintiffs may well choose to decide not to, not to in, um, plead violations of the statutes that do involve contribution because they may decide that may give them some leverage against some of the defendants. Or they may decide to dismiss some of the cases if they can make a deal with some of the defendants because of joint and several liability. That would allow Section 10B, the no, the no contribution rule of Section 10B to be used as a judicial uh, Im implied repeal of the contribution rights in the other sections. Furthermore, a decision against contribution would, as Justice Stevens suggested in his questions a moment ago, overturn 25 years of consistent lower court case law. Until a few months ago, when the Eighth Circuit decided the Chudich case, there was 25 years of consistent law. Now, earlier, we, there was some debate by Mr. Byrd as to the size of the judicial oak it's interesting, and I think quite compelling, that when Section 10B got to this court for the first time in 1971, it was 25 years old. It had first been recognized 25 years before in the Cardin case. In the Blue Chip case, when this court first reached the Birnbaum rule, that, that rule, came from, which came from the Second Circuit, was 22 years old. And the blue chip case, in the words of the Chief Justice speaking, Justice Ren then Justice Rehnquist speaking for the court, was that the 25 years of consistent judicial interpretation should not, was significantly persuasive in and of itself. Today, we are facing the decision with respect to contribution or no contribution. Contribution has been around in the federal courts in the securities fraud area for 25 years, the same length of time, and with about the same judicial pedigree. Mr. Byrd said it had, uh, contribution hadn't been approved by as many courts 
as Section 10B at the time t Section 10B got here. But there are seven or five or six circuits that have approved contribution, and I suspect the weight of judicial authority is about the same. The same is true of the Birnbaum rule. So the contribution rule comes to this court with the same weight of judicial authority behind it from the lower courts as did um, the 10B rule itself uh, and the um, purchaser-seller rule uh, found by the court to be continue to be appropriate uh, in the blue chip case. In summary, the choice is an outcome consistent with congressional intent as expressed in Section 10B's closest analogs with 25 years of judicial interpretation the SEC's view of the enforcement scheme and how it can best be administered, and the framers' decision as to where policy decisions should be made. The alternative cannot possibly be said to be consistent with congressional intent. In fact, it would repeal congressional decisions, and it would fail to fulfill this Court's duty to complete the task it undertook beginning in 1971 to make the Section 10B remedy as close as possible to the instrument Congress would have created and as compatible as possible with the regulatory enfor and enforcement regime Congress did create. To summarize, we are only asking this Court to do what the Court has consistently done with Section 10B, having created the judicial remedy, what are its configurations and contours going to be and how can we best make it more close, most closely approximate what Congress would have intended and how may we make it most the closest possible approximation uh, to what will not um, uh, interfere with the enforcement provisions of the remaining provisions of the Securities Act and how best to fulfill the purposes of those acts. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Olson. Mr. Long, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Securities and Exchange Commission has concluded that the Court should recognize a right of contribution under Section 10B and Rule 10B-5. Uh, the Commission has con made that conclusion for essentially two reasons. First, Congress provided for contribution in provisions of the 1934 Act that create express private rights of action for securities fraud, that is Sections 9 and 18. Because Section 10B is part of a family of rights that should be construed as a coherent whole, Congress's decision to recognize a right to contribution in the comparable express causes of action should govern in actions under Section 10B. Second, the Court has the power to recognize a right of contribution. The Section 10B right of action is an implied right. Defendants are liable under Section 10B only because courts have said so. In prior cases, this Court has defined the contours of the Section 10B right of action to maintain even-handed administration of the securities laws. The Court can and should exercise that power in this case to recognize a right to contribution. And let me address the second point, the power point first. Mr. Long, do you think in recent cases we've said that the courts have the power to create causes of action? Well, I think what we have here is we would agree this is a cause of action, but it's not an independent cause of action. Contribution is entirely derivative of the underlying Section 10B cause of action. The parties are all parties who either were present in the original action or they could have been present if the plaintiff had named them, and the liability is the liability that's established in the original action. So we do not view this as a case in which it's appropriate to apply the Texas Industries or Northwest Airlines type of analysis. That analysis is appropriate where Congress has expressly uh, created a cause of action but has omitted a right of contribution. Well, you, you might think that if Congress has expressly created the cause of action and we, we lack the power to 
uh, create a right of contribution, that a fortiori there wouldn't be such a right if it's only an implied cause of action in the first place. Well, again, the, the approach the Court has followed is when it has implied the cause of action, it has undertaken the, the necessary process of defining the contours of that action, of rounding it out. And where the question is whether there should be a right of contribution, we see no um, essential difference between answering that question and answering the kinds of questions that this Court has answered in many prior cases under Section uh, 10B, whether to recognize a defense, the measure of damages. Uh, this is really, we think, just another question in that line. Well, to the extent that it is a, a new cause of action, it seems to me it's a step beyond questions about whether there should be a statute of limitations or a defense. Now, I would agree with you that it's a step beyond in that sense, but again, I would emphasize this is quite different from implying a freestanding cause of action. And in the situation the court is presented with here, where Section 10B really sits among some express causes of action that Congress created, where Congress expressly recognized rights of contribution. And Section 10B not only sits in the middle of those, but in fact is a kind of catch-all that overlaps to a great degree for the court to not imply uh, or not recognize a right of contribution, we think would in fact be less respectful to the intent of Congress than to apply the same policy choice, the same weighing of policy considerations that Congress made in 1934. Underlies that policy choice in these other sections uh, or uh, under 10b-5. Why is the commission so intent on on furnishing retribution in 10B cases? Uh, Retribution, contribution? Contribution. (laughs) The the commission reached this conclusion because it decided as a matter of fairness and as a matter of even-handed administration of the securities laws that a a contribution right ought to be recognized uh, under Section 10B. How does that work out? You mean... uh, uh, these uh, people who are jointly and severally liable, uh, uh, if, somebody gets, if somebody gets stuck for the whole bill, uh, it's fair to dig out the other fellows who share, who should share the liability. Is that it? That's part of it. It is under Section 10B, a very wide variety of defendants may be sued, and there may be quite a range uh, of responsibility. And it is possible for a defendant with a deep pocket, but with a rather uh, less serious culpability to be stuck, as you say, for the entire liability. Uh, that's part of the fairness argument. As I say, the other part is uh, a desire to harmonize the securities laws and give these defendants uh, the right to contribution that Congress gave them in the uh, comparable express causes of action. In, in our, I suppose you could always be fair by just limiting limiting recoveries uh, to the named defendant's fair share. Well, of course, that would it's possible for the plaintiff, the victim, not to name all the possible uh, defendants. That's why contribution may uh, be a cause of action. It can result in some cases in, a, in an additional action. But that think? would be within the plaintiff's own power. Yes, that would, yeah. the plaintiff would have the power. Well, I mean, if the limit. plaintiff suffers, it's the plaintiff's own fault oh. on Justice White's side. Well, the plaintiff may be quite confident or reasonably confident of getting a full recovery because it, it is joint and several liability, and if the plaintiff knows it's got a deep well, wouldn't you, would, you, would you guess that most plaintiffs would be in favor of, uh, of, uh, of uh, the, the commission's poli- suggested policy? Contribution? Would they rather have contribution or not? I, I think most plaintiffs would not want to have contribution. Because? The, the absence of contribution, I think, gives plaintiffs additional control over the lawsuit. So I think is the short answer to that. Um, let me say then just a word about the, uh, the second point I have, why the Commission believes uh, that the comparable provisions in the securities laws uh, evince a congressional intent to allow contribution and private actions for damages for securities fraud. Uh, In LAMF, the court identified the 
express rights of action that are most analogous to the implied right of action under Section 10b. They are found in Sections 9 and 18 of the 1934 Act. Sections 9 and 18 target the precise dangers that are the focus of Section 10b, and they provide remedies for investors injured by manipulative practices or false or misleading statements. And, of course, both Sections 9 and 18 expressly provide for contributions, uh, contribution rights. Section 10b is the catch-all provision. It overlaps uh, both Sections 9 and 18. It provides a general remedy for manipulative or deceptive practices. Because Sections 9, 10b, and 18 are integral elements of a complex web of regulations, as the Court said in LAMP, they should be cons- construed to form a coherent whole. Consequently, Congress's express determination to allow contribution under Sections 9 and 18 should also govern under Section 10b. Unless there are further questions, I thank the Court. Thank you, Mr. Long. Mr. Berg, you have five minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Contribution is a new cause of action, whether the underlying victim's claim is expressed in a statute, implied in a statute, or arising from the common law. That is a simple error I believe I heard one of the respondents make. Respondents referred to footnote 11 in the Texas Industries case. In footnote 11, the court wrote, we intimate no view as to the correctness of, and followed with citation to the three cases which then said there will be contribution in 10b-5 actions. If contribution in 10b-5 actions is a sapling, it was never cultivated by this court. Complexity of contribution is an issue of policy. Fleshing out a new cause of action for contribution is an Article I, Article III problem. That is our point. Finally, this case is at the intersection of two lines of authority. One line of authority says that as to all causes of action, there shall be implication if, in a federal statute, if and only if, Congress clearly and affirmatively intended that that be so. Another line of cases says we have this 10b-5 victim's cause of action, we must flesh it out, and because we have no other signpost, we must look to what Congress would have done if Congress had realized there was going to be this cause of action. The question is which of those lines of authority shall govern the cause of action, if any, for contribution under Section 10b-5. The would-have-done analysis is exactly what got this court to the Borak cause of action, and it is exactly what this court rejected in Touche-Ross, in Transamerica Mortgage Advisors, in Texas Industries, and in Northwest Airlines. And it is exactly what this court should reject here. From this intersection, the court should say, the intent-based jurisprudence implies, applies to all implied causes of action, whether for contribution or for anything else. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Byrd. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.